You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and my guest this week is Krish Ashok. His his first name is Ashok. He is South Indian, and in South India, usually the um, the given name comes second. Ashok is not a chef, but he cooks daily. He's not a scientist, but he can explain science with easy to understand clarity. He trained to be an electronics engineer, but is now a software engineer. He learned to cook from the women in his family who can make the perfectly fluffy idli without lecturing people on lactobacilli and pH levels. He likes the scientific method, not because it offers him the ability to bully people with knowledge, but because it confidently lets him say, I don't know, let me test it for myself. When he is not cooking, he's usually playing subversive music on the violin or cello. He lives in Chennai with a wife who sagely prevents him from buying more gadgets for the kitchen and a son who has the flora and fauna in the neighborhood terrorized. So I'm just reading that um, little biography from um, his author page on Penguin India. And I would highly recommend everybody check out um, Ashok's YouTube channel, which is, um, which among other things has um, these beautiful videos of uh, him cooking with background music played by Ashok himself. He's a very gifted musician and is basically one of these Renaissance men or Renaissance people um, who is sickeningly talented at a wide range of things. And I've, I'm talking to him today about his book, Masala Lab, The Science of Indian Cooking. Welcome, Ashok. Thank you. Thank you, Yana. Uh, first of all, let's um, let's hear a passage from the book to start off with. Um, I believe you have a passage that you'd like to read to us. Yes. Um, so I, I've picked the, uh, the opening uh, paragraphs of uh, uh, chapter two, which is Science of Spice and Flavor. Wonderful. Uh, the, yeah, the plural of spouse is spice by Christopher <laughs> Morley. Consider coriander. Its name comes from chorus, the Greek word for bedbugs, because the ancient Greeks thought that the seeds smelt like the insect. It is, of course, unfortunate, because if anything, we must say that the bedbug smells like the spice and not the other way around. Humankind's association with those critters is likely more recent than our association with this versatile spice, which finds its way into almost every Indian dish in every imaginable form, leaf, stalk, root, and seed. But there is a sizable section of the population that has a visceral aversion to coriander, about 4 to 14%, depending on their ancestry, in its leaf form. It turns out that it's not an irrational personal choice, but genetics. Coriander's flavor molecules are a family of compounds called aldehydes, and the ones present in coriander are also found in soap. Some people have a gene or a combination of genes, we don't know fully yet, that makes their taste buds specifically sensitive to aldehydes. So eating coriander leaves strongly reminds them of soap. But what's interesting is that when you crush coriander leaves or grind them into a paste, an enzymatic reaction breaks down these soapy aldehydes, which is why people who can't tolerate the leaves as a garnish don't mind coriander chutney in their dishes. Beyond those sensitive to the flavor of coriander, Professor Linda Bartoshuk from the University of Florida has coined the expression super taster to describe people with a genetic predisposition that enables them to detect bitter tastes more strongly than others. Using a strongly bitter compound called propyl thiouracil, the research tells us that about 25% of the population is super sensitive to the bitterness of this compound and cannot tolerate it, while another 25% cannot detect it at all. The rest of the population has a spectrum of sensitivity that ranges from low to medium. Super tasters are also more likely to be chefs and food critics and women. Mm. 
Thank you. Um, so I have been told that I am a super taster because I, I, I'm also very sensitive to bitterness. Um, and brassicas and certain other things taste bitter to me that don't taste bitter to other people. Um, but I actually quite like the bitter, the, the kind of bitterness that I can detect in broccoli and Brussels sprouts and things. Um, but I, I, um, I have to put sugar or cream in coffee. And I also have difficulties, um, with a lot of other, uh, bitter tastes are just too bitter for me. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I think it's quite common, though. Um, and yes. I'm certainly not a chef or a food critic. <laughs> I, I, the first thing that really struck me about your book is that um, most of the books about Indian cooking, as opposed to simple cookbooks that are just um, collections of recipes, most of the writing about Indian cookery I've read is this very evocative um sensuous, um, elusive writing. My friend, uh, one of my best friends, Mia Mirza, is a Indian uh, food columnist. Um, and her writing is just like a kind of sensory experience. Um, it's you can I like to read it aloud and roll the words around in my mouth to feel the sort of mouth feel. And it's all about kind of uh you know, the memories of her um, Parsi family in um, in pre uh, um, in kind of pre-independence Calcutta and about um, tradition and history. And uh, it's all this beautiful metaphorical writing. And there's, of course, a place for that. But I also really, really enjoy um, popular science writing. Um, and your book just absolutely tickled my po fun, my popular science funny bone, or whatever it is. This is not a very good <laughs> metaphor, but um, it's jam-packed with uh, just the kind of fascinating little scientific tidbits that I um, that I love reading about. So, for example, you talk about fats when you're talking about omega-3 and omega-6 fats. And you have a little digression and you say uh, the way that we can tell omega, th uh, the reason why we call them omega-3 and omega-6 is that mono and polyunsaturated fats are, are characterized by having um, only one double carbon bond or monounsaturated yes. as opposed to multiple um, double carbon bonds in saturated fats. Saturated means that all your carbons are, are bonded. Um, and um, the omega-3, in omega-3s, if you count from the end molecule, the omega molecule, the last one, you count three back and that's where the carbon bond is, it's an omega-3. And if you count six back and that's where the carbon bond is, it's an omega-6. Yep. Oh, the, the book is just full of moments like that, and they are absolutely delightful. Um, Thank you. Did you? What was your What was your initial inspiration for for taking this scientific approach to Indian cookery? So there's uh, uh, one of the one of the reasons is is if you if I think back to how I learned to cook. Um, it was it was when I was young and um, uh, the first time I was going abroad and I reached out to all the the older sort of women in my family and asked them for their you know recipes and so on. Pretty early on, I realized that uh, they don't seem to think in terms of recipes. Uh, they had a rough sense of what the ingredients were and they and they also said and if you don't have this, you could just use that. You know, uh, so. Pretty early on, it, it kind of uh, I realized that uh, somehow the practical act of cooking at a home uh, and what the sort of very detailed, elaborate recipes in a cookbook tend to describe, um, they were at odds with each other. Uh, cooking wasn't exactly that precise, uh, and if you didn't have some of the ingredients, you replaced it. But but a recipe never told you what to replace it with, and so on. So there was always that, right? Um, and the second is there is also this larger historical and social context of the fact that uh, a lot of food writing about Indian cooking, as you rightly said, is either orientalized 
was orientalized originally by the by the British and European writers writing about it, uh, and then uh, by the the upper caste privileged uh, uh, people you know within India you know, who were all very anglicized uh, uh, and had access uh, to to being able to learn English uh, back in the day and so on. It's them writing in exactly the same way that the British used to write about, uh, and it's it's fascinating because a lot of the original writing about Indian right uh, Indian food was never by people who actually cooked themselves uh, or or cooked by themselves at home. Uh, these were either people who had cooks, um, and again, India is one of those countries where the rich tend to be able to afford uh, you know someone to have uh, come over to your house and cook food for you. Uh, and so it's interesting. So the average middle class person uh, family uh, in India usually has a woman cooking. Uh, and until about a couple of generations ago, you know, they did not have access to education. So we don't have too much of that writing. So it's all oral knowledge. And the fascinating thing is that a lot of that oral knowledge is very practical, tacit uh, scientific wisdom when you really think about it. Uh, it's basically simple day-to-day wisdom about when do you know rice is cooked, right? Uh, how do you estimate the amount of water for rice? Um, how do you how do you know when the oil is hot enough? Uh, how do you know how do you get the perfect kind of browning uh, on on a puri or a chapati or bread or whatever it is you're making? Um, how do you you know add more flavor? How do you extract more flavor out of spices? Uh, and these were not chemists. Uh, these were just people who had sort of this practical wisdom uh, passed on, for, you know, from grandmother to daughter and so on. Uh, and that, for some reason, um, has never been captured in writing. So, so I felt that you know, given my background as a as an engineer, as someone who's always you know been keen on on explaining popular science, you know, to kids and you know and and everyone else. Uh, and so that was a lot of my writing experience as well. It's it's about explaining science and technology uh, outside of my music and other a- areas of interest. Uh, so I just combined both of those together and realized that there's an opportunity, there's an opening for a book that de-exoticizes Indian cooking and focuses on the practical kind of uh, day-to-day wisdom that that you know millions, you know, billions, millions of uh, mostly women uh, in India in in Indian homes kind of apply on a day-to-day basis, uh, and it needed to be documented uh, through the language of science. So, so that was the original sort of inspiration. Yes, absolutely. I mean, writing that kind of artsy writing about cookery, like Mayer's writing, which is incredibly beautiful and enjoyable to read, and I recommend it to everyone, but you won't learn to cook that way. It's almost sort of orthogonal to the process of cooking. Exactly. It's like a poem about cooking rather than, uh, rather than a, a, a way of helping you cook. The rice cooking thing was a really good example from your book of the way in which um, some of the some of the sort of folk wisdom is actually based on the is is actually based on kind of empirical trial and error, and behind that is a scientific explanation. Can you um, can you talk for the listeners about why it's better to use the one knuckle? method for telling how much water to add to your rice rather than measuring two parts water to one part rice absolutely i think it was one of the uh, one of those discoveries that i made many years ago uh, is that as long as i was cooking uh, rice for just myself and you know just the family estimating by ratio of water uh, to rice seemed to work right you know depending on the variety of rice uh, you know and the kind of dish you know i would either use a a one is to two ratio uh, for making South Indian sort of slightly wetter, stickier rice dishes, and a one is to one and a half uh, for more drier pulao, uh, biryani kinds of dishes, and so on. Uh, and it was all fine, uh, right? Uh, and it's interesting that it's only when there's a party uh, and there's like you know ten people come come home, and then you suddenly have to cook say three cups of rice, uh, and you add six cups of water, is when you realize that your ratios don't actually work. Uh, and in, and in that sense, I think you know intuitively, obviously, over time, people who've been doing this, and especially you know people who've been cooking for large numbers of people all their lives and so on, kind of intuitively know this. So the reason for this is that rice actually absorbs only its own volume of water, right? So a cup of rice actually absorbs a cup of water to get to the kind of texture uh, that we like to eat, right? Of course, it can continue to absorb a lot more and kind of become completely mushy. But for it to retain structural integrity while it's still fully cooked, one cup of rice absorbs a cup of water. So the only reason we add extra water 
is to account for the fact that some of the water will evaporate because it's in an open pot and water will continue evaporating. So the question here is how do you estimate the amount of extra water that you have to add, right? So the amount of extra water that you have to add is essentially a function of the surface area. So, so because evaporation is a function of surface area, the more the surface area, the faster water will evaporate. So for your typical vessel at home in general, you know, 10 to 12 inches sort of width, what ends up happening is that if you generally estimate water above the surface of the rice that comes up to one knuckle, you know, joint on your index finger, that's a reasonable uh, guess of uh, the amount of extra water that you might need, right? And uh, the variation in finger sizes and the that distance generally is not that much um, uh, to the point where you're going to, you know, sort of wildly go wrong either. So it's, it's a very, very nice uh, sort of heuristic. Uh, and what that does is that regardless of the amount of rice you're cooking, you're only adding just that extra amount of water on top of the rice that's going to get evaporated. Uh, by using the knuckle method, and and it works for any amount of rice, um, and I think that's the that's the beauty of it. Mm, yeah, that's lovely because obviously, if you have say a narrower, taller pan, right, it's not you're not going to get as much evaporation. So if you put the yes. same amount of water in there by volume, you're going to have soggy rice. But if you only do the one knuckle method, there will be less water going in there, and it will be proportional to your your evaporation times. Exactly. And it self-adjusts for any kind of width of pan because, you know, slower the rate of evaporation in a narrower vessel, you will naturally add less water because the, the vessel is narrower. Yeah, it seems to me to be, um, it's it's one of those things that is characteristic in this book that it's, uh, this is not a recipe book, What it, but it does provide a lot of tips for cooking. Um, it's not just a kind of science book. It's this is the science, and here's why you should try doing these things. Um, I'm likely to reread this book many times because I cook quite a lot, and I almost always cook Indian food. But it's um, what it does is um, give you heuristics rather than recipes, i.e., kind of methodologies. I guess. Can you say more about why? Um, at one point, you say burn the recipe book. In fact, I think that might be the title of one of the chapters <laughs> is Burn the Recipe Book. Yes, um, Burn the Recipe, yes. Why do, you, why do you say that? Why should we burn the recipe book? So uh, obviously, I mean, you know, the, the, the title is meant to be sort of clickbait and catchy in that <laughs> yes. sense. But uh, you know, I would actually recommend uh, people burning recipe books. You know, I, And to be honest, I have enjoyed several recipe books. There are several books that are very beautifully written. Um, and there are also... I mean, there are recipe books that have excellent, very minimalist recipes, um, and there are recipe books that do explain uh, why what you're doing works and so on. I think so. So no, no hard feelings against recipe books in general. Uh, but I think the 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 overarching aim was to tell at least the beginner reader that if you're learning to cook, recipes are not a great way to learn to cook uh, because the vast majority of recipes will be inconsistent, um, and chances are you you perhaps are not going to drop a, a ton of money buying one of, say, your time Otto Lenghi's book, whose recipes are excellent and minimalist. Uh, but on the other hand, you're probably going to just look it up on the internet. Uh, and there's just so much information out there. Uh, the second, second challenge with uh, recipes is that they tend to be very prescriptive and limiting about how a dish is to, is to be made, right? You need these ingredients, you need these 15 spices, and this is how you do it. And and they and many of those steps will involve methods uh, that you won't know why you're doing. Uh, why do I have to do this? Uh, why did this actually work? Why is the sequence not the other way? Why must I add, uh, say, the uh, uh, the lentils after I add the tamarind juice? Is there is there a reason to it at all? Uh, and so one, that's the problem. So uh, the second, uh, the other thing is that there's an authenticity bias in that a lot of recipes uh, end up claiming that this is the only way to make something. Uh, and that's not how food works. Indian food works simply by uh, people opening their fridges, looking at their pantry, uh, and essentially making whatever is out there and whatever is likely to spoil in the next couple of days in the steaming, you know, tropical climate. Uh, a lot of cooking is just adjusting with what you have and making do. Uh, and you and a lot of cooking is fundamentally about uh, figuring out how to make, say, a dal. There are a million ways to do it. 
You can use any lentil, any combination of acid, any combination of fat, um, and you get a dal. And yet the internet will tell you that this is exactly how a dal tarka is to be made. This is exactly how a, a, a ragada is to be made or so on. Um, that I think is fallacious, right? So the intent there was to say that start thinking like our grandmothers and our mothers, which is in terms of meta models and algorithms, right? So there is a generic sort of a gravy dish algorithm, right? So there's a, there's, you start with the fat, there's whole spices, uh, then you add sort of uh, uh, fresh spices, uh, then you add uh, like a typical sort of bulking agent in, in, in Typically, it's onions and tomatoes uh, in, in the context of India. Uh, and there's always ginger, garlic, and other spices as, as the base flavoring agent. And then you add some kind of uh, your main ingredient, which could be either meat or vegetables uh, in some form. Then you add a stock. Uh, it's either just water in most cases, and sometimes it's coconut milk, and sometimes it is, uh, uh, you know, it could be cream. It could be anything, right? And then once you do all of that, um, then you add some finishing spices in terms of you know spice powders and so on. If you have this algorithm in mind, um, then US it's the equivalent of having a million recipes in your head. Uh, and so I think you know, that's the reason why I said uh, it takes you away from the authenticity bias. It means that if you want to make a Bengali style dal, um, if you just have mustard oil and you have some of those uh, nigella seeds uh, and uh, you know celery seeds and so on, uh, you can just add any other ingredient and it will taste Bengali. Uh, but the internet will tell you, or cookbooks will tell you, no, no, that's not authentically Bengali. Uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, so you're indulging in cultural appropriation and so on. When you're cooking at home, all you're trying to do is make a delicious meal with what you have. Uh, and I think you know, thinking in terms of meta models and algorithms, you know, frees your mind. So that's the that's the reason why I say you know, burn the recipe. You know, you know embrace algorithms instead. I'm very much with you on this, um, and I. Here at here at home, we um, have a kind of supper domestic supper club, so we cook for each other very frequently, um, usually a few times a week, alternating. And the boys I live with, I live with four men um, for my sins. Um, they all they all enjoy cooking mostly traditional French cuisine, and they like to follow recipes to the letter. Um, and actually, they enjoy reading recipe books for days beforehand and thinking carefully about what they're going to do and then doing a mise en place and lining up every single one of the ingredients specified in the book, going on a special shopping trip if necessary to get the ingredients and following exactly what is said in the in the book. Whereas my method is to read uh, recipe books in my spare time to get some inspiration but then when I'm actually cooking, I don't have a recipe there at all. Um, and right. I just improvise. And I feel that that Indian cuisine is particularly forgiving um, for the improviser because it doesn't have to have a very specific texture. Um, you can make right. a really tasty kind of slop if you want to. Yep. doesn't matter. Yep. Um, it also... There are so many there are so many different spices going into it very frequently and different ingredients that you can just kind of keep adjusting. You can just taste and think, okay, I'll put a little more amateur in or I'll put a little more cumin in or something until you get what you want. Um, whereas the kinds of the the French cuisine is much more minimalist in the ingredients that are going in and much more specific in the kind of processes. Here you need mayonnaise and that's got to, that's got to work. You know, you can't, there's only one texture that needs to be like, and here you need, um, here you need to crisp up duck, duck legs and you have to do that in a specific way. Um, so I do feel Indian cuisine is particularly, is particularly forgiving and particularly, um, just am amenable, actually, to this kind of more free-flowing improvisational approach. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think uh, uh, you're spot on. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, French cooking, right? So there's a certain very specific historical reason to why uh, it is the way it is. Incl Italian cooking is, is very similar in that sense, right? Um, so on the one hand, uh, let, let me take Italian cooking as an example. Mm -hmm. um, in that the that the ultimate quality of the dish is very significantly dependent on the quality of the ingredients that you use, right? It's um, so you know if the tomatoes uh, don't have that sort of you know that 
that the burst of flavor uh, and if the olive oil is 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 not great or if the the parmesan is not you know from the you know parmigiano reggiano the original you know parmesan cheese and so on um so italian food you know doesn't quite taste good the the cooking techniques by themselves are very very minimalist the number of ingredients are very minimal right so there's there is that one aspect to that the second you know particularly with french cooking uh french cuisine is essentially among the world's first cuisines to industrialize cooking uh, in the sense that uh cooking has always been something you did at home uh, or you did it at large scale uh for very rich people uh you know in in kings and you know palaces and such right uh the rise of restaurants as a public place where people of all kinds could come and eat uh it, it required a new way of thinking about the industrialization of food because you had to cook the same dish over and over again and serve it individually uh to people uh and so that so if you look at you if you look at a lot of the french you know culinary textbooks they kind of go back to that 17th and 18th century uh where the first uh, generation of people writers like think like karem i think uh, who kind of wrote down the precise methods uh, and simplified things down to the point where you know some young person could be trained uh, as a sous chef uh, just to sort of you know make this sauce make the hollandaise sauce or just make the brown sauce or make the velout or uh, make a roux uh, and so uh, french cooking was the first to embrace the sort of algorithmic here are the five basic techniques the five mother sauces and and these are all the uh, this is how you roast and this is how you, so there's a certain methodicalness that that kind of came from the fact that they were the first to actually re- start running restaurants uh, and so on india is quite just the opposite uh, india did not have restaurants uh, till well after independence at any kind of scale uh and this has to do with the hindu caste system right uh you know people from one caste would simply not eat food uh cooked by someone from another caste let alone sit at the same table uh and so on so there was really no culture of communal eating of any kind in india almost all indian cuisine in some sense has been shall i say really just home cuisines where people would just cook with whatever they had and you can see that in the dishes which is that it's very forgiving in terms of uh, textures uh you can you can adjust uh any you know uh, dishes to any which way you want based on what you have and so on uh and particularly if i had to fast forward to the sort of the urban indian setting uh post independence and so on large cities don't have access to great quality produce uh produce often has to travel uh from villages where it is you know uh, where it is freshly grown and given the lack of refrigeration um uh, uh, and the cold chain and so on till very recently uh what you'd end up having is that uh vegetables by the time they reach a city they're not in great shape at all so they have to be plucked really really raw uh, so that you know they they can be bought and sold in the cities so a lot of urban indian middle class cooking in some sense has evolved as a result of making sure that i can take very poor quality ingredients uh and use spices to make them interesting um and so so that's the reason why indian food almost always tastes to a lot of people who are not used to it it's 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 like a flavor bomb there's just so many flavors uh because you know what you don't what the person will not taste is the actual potato or the carrot or the chicken uh because that in in indian cooking that's considered a bad thing if you taste the potato then you haven't cooked it enough uh, so it's you know it's i think it's it's that that kind of makes uh, indian cuisine what it is today yes if i sort of picked the 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 vegetables and the and the meat out of a lot of um curries that good curries that i've eaten and and just kind of washed off the sauce and and the gravy and ate them then the meat is would often be chewy and or tough or stringy and the vegetables kind of mushy um tasteless the taste is all um is very often all in the gravies i mean there are there are exceptions but um whereas in the french or italian cuisine the the meat and the vegetables are 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 more naked more exposed and therefore the texture has to be right and the kind of flavor of the of the of the of those base ingredients has to be right um and i think this is also why argentine cuisine is so singularly appalling um i apologize to any argentines who may be listening to this but <laughs> it really is because it's italian cuisine but done with very poor quality um basic ingredients yeah uh you know they will make a tomato and avocado and and a mozzarella salad like you might have in italy which in italy would be absolutely exquisite 
But yes. instead of real mozzarella, it will be this plastic mozzarella style processed cheese. And the tomatoes will be watery and flavorless. The avocado is usually quite good. But, um, and it will, and the basil leaves will be, um, past their best. And the whole thing just tastes awful. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they should really switch <laughs> yeah. over to Indian style cooking, except that the Argentines <laughs> yes. cannot deal with chili at all. Um, ah, they yes. don't like heat. Um, you had a really interesting passage on, um, the way that heat transforms, um, food. And it's ironically when I, when I was living in India. So initially for the first, uh, part of my, Two years in India, I was living in uh, Pune with a um, Tamilian, and he doesn't really like Indian food. And the main reason being that he just cannot deal with with um, heat at all. And so whenever we would um, go out to eat, he always insisted on eating non-Indian food because he just didn't want to risk there being chili in his food. Uh, which was really strange to me because for me, the hotter, the better. Um, yeah. And your explanation, let me see if I can find it. Um, so it gives a lovely example of the kind of writing that you do. Science of heat. Yeah, I'm going to read a little passage. For science, let's do a small experiment. Go pick up a green chili and bite into it. Now let me explain what is happening to you. First, you taste the mildly citrusy and floral notes of the outer flesh of the chili and the slight bitterness of the seeds. At some point, you will bite through the placenta, the white structure that holds the seeds to the outer flesh, after which a family of molecules known as capsaicinoids get down to work, like the first batch of muscled prisoners exiting a prisoner prison they've just set fire to. As part of an evolutionary strategy to shield you from acts of wanton stupidity, your mouth has TRPV1 receptors, which trigger panic bells when a few things happen. One of them is when you bite into a hot samosa that you think has cooled down. The second is when you imbibe something with very low pH levels, essentially highly acidic things. The TRPV1 receptors detect high temperatures and strong acids in the mouth, and here's where the genius of the chili plant comes into play. As part of its evolutionary strategy to prevent being munched on by goats and cows, its neat little biochemical trick is the production of a family of molecules that snugly fit into this receptor. And like the proverbial boy who cried wolf, turn it on. The receptors, as per standard operating procedure, start a chain of communication that notifies the brain that the mouth is literally on fire. The headquarter takes emergency action, like unleashing the experience of pain to remind you not to put hot things into your mouth, or rushing more blood to your face and increasing perspiration to cool you down. So at this point, I take it that you must be in pain, sweating, face flushed and, and seeking some water. I'm afraid water won't be of much help. Capsaicin is not water soluble. It only dissolves in fat or alcohol. A glass of milk, a spoonful of sugar or honey, or some wine will be much more effective in putting out this illusory fire in your mouth. I'm skipping a little bit, but why do we love chilies so much? For a plant that was unknown to the subcontinent till the Portuguese introduced it to us, after the Spanish discovered it in Mexico, chilies have come to define Indian food more than any other flavour. To understand this, we need to head back to the scene where the TRPV1 receptors panicked, panicked the brain into thinking that the mouth was on fire after being fooled by capsaicin. Once the brain deals with this panic, it has an automatic tendency to release endorphins because sustained pain tends to incapacitate the body. Picture a Paleolithic man who has just been scratched by a wounded saber-toothed tiger. It's a deep scratch and he is in a lot of pain. But if he doesn't get on his legs and walk, run away, the tiger is likely to make a meal of him. So evolution has designed a mechanism where pain is usually followed by the release of endorphins. This convinces the opioid receptors in the brain to reduce the perception of pain, 
allowing the Stone Age chaps to run away from large cats even when injured. In simpler terms, the pain of eating chilies is also pleasurable, and since the capsaicin is only creating the illusion of heat, it does no permanent damage unless you eat a ton of chilies. And the release of endorphins while you're eating makes the rest of the food taste way more delicious than it is. This is why we are addicted to hot food. So I love that explanation of the kind of rather BDSM-like effect of, of chilies <laughs> and, and heat. Um, because, yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a really, really uh, chilly addict. Um, and I've quite, yes. quite rarely encountered food that was too hot for me to eat, um, too spicy. Um, but the one place I did encounter it was in Tamil Nadu, <laughs> in your home state. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I was defeated on one occasion by a, a very innocent-looking chutney. Uh-huh. Yeah, you talk. So you talk in the book about um, some of the ways in which traditional Indian cookery methods are vindicated by science, but you also offer some suggestions as to how traditional Indian cookery methods could be could even be improved and optimized. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe start with one thing you mentioned in that regard is the fact that Indian cuisine um, rarely uses alcohol. Um, tell us yes. a little bit of what, about why um, uh, why that is and uh, what's going on there. So there's, there's, again, as with most things, uh, there's a little bit of history. Um, so when you think about uh, uh, the use of alcohol in cooking, uh, again, it kind of goes back to the the Hindu caste system, uh, as well as well as the fact that uh, India was ruled by uh, the Mughals for about 300 years. Uh, interestingly, the, the Mughals, the emperors themselves, were notoriously uh, uh, addicted to wine, um, addicted to alcohol in general. Uh, but obviously, I think the uh, the, the larger population of Muslims in India, obviously, the vast majority of them w- were not into drinking alcohol. That's number one, because it was haram and so on. Uh, and within the within the Hindu sort of uh, ecosystem, uh, generally, it's the uh, lower caste people who used to drink, al- who used to brew alcohol, that there was their profession that they used to ferment and brew alcohol. Uh, and so because of the caste system, uh, alcohol was considered to be uh, taboo by by upper caste and more privileged uh, Hindus in general, right? So, long story short, uh, what ended up happening is uh, that when the British were here, uh, they obviously introduced alcohol that was brewed in Scotland. I mean, the whiskies and the, the rums and the brandies and so on. Uh, and so, it was in their interest to also make sure that there was no local brewing traditions that could kind of become commercial, you know, around the nineteenth and you know twentieth century and so on. So. The British actually were the ones who put in place a lot of the really restrictive laws, which incidentally are still on the books. You know, so in India did not enact enact a new set of laws when you know when we became independent, right? We simply inherited most of the uh, the British colonial laws, and we just you know uh, fixed a few things here and there. But largely, uh, other than the fact that everyone could vote now, uh, nothing much changed. So we still continue to keep a lot of those colonial era laws, and this this was one of those examples of uh, laws. Uh, restricting the brewing of alcohol uh, uh, in most parts of India, uh, and so the only kind of alcohol that used to be brewed is by people who are who are to do it illegally, um, um, and so on. Right. So therefore, there is this larger historical context to why alcohol does not uh, see very common use uh, in typical day to day Indian cooking. That said, uh, there are uh, lower caste and tribal societies in India where cooking with uh, toddy cooking with arak, uh, sort of locally brewed liquor, uh, or goans cooking with feni, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is is quite common. Uh, so it, it it does exist in pockets. So that's that's sort of the historical reason. The scientific reason, obviously, is the fact that all of your spice flavor molecules tend to dissolve in fats or alcohols uh, or both, uh, but never water. Most spice flavor molecules uh, do not dissolve in water, right? Uh, so the idea is that if you use both fats and alcohols, uh, you're going to get much, much more flavor than if you only use fats. Um, and the added advantage is the fact that by the time the dish is cooked, all of the actual alcohol is actually going to be uh, is is going to evaporate. 
so you're not going to be left with a dish that you know has any level of booze whatsoever right so that's one of the reasons why i very specifically encourage that look unless you have a very specific religious restriction right that you will not touch alcohol in any shape or form whatsoever and if you're largely open to it uh, even if you don't drink you know by yourself uh, i think you should use alcohol in your cooking because it will tremendously improve indian cooking and you know i have you know literally in all, most of my videos when i'm making any north indian dish uh, when i make the gravy with ginger onion tomatoes garlic uh, and so on after uh, they've sort of you know cooked in the in the uh, in the oil and once they start sticking to the the bottom of the pan the best way is to use a little bit of rum or brandy to deglaze uh, all of those you know good things from the the bottom of the pan and on top of that they'll extract a ton of flavor uh from the remaining bits uh, and by the end of the cooking the alcohol would have you know evaporated for most part leaving behind the complex uh flavors of either the grape juice or the burnt grape juice in case of brandy and so on which actually improves the dish so that's the reason why i recommend that it's one 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 way to improve indian cooking is to use alcohol more you know more regularly yeah i've been since reading the book i've been deglazing i was deglazing with vodka because i thought i don't want to really add any any wine flavor to the dish um but then yes. i made this parsi dal that i make which is with like um smoked paprika and kashmiri chilies and and um a bit of garlic and brown sugar and i put red wine in to deglaze the onions and it was so good that from now on oh, yes. my dal is going to have red wine in it um don't tell yeah, anyone i, I use rum <laughs> <laughs> um very inauthentic but just tasted great and <laughs> absolutely i like the fact that i mean i do enjoy as a matter of sort of i guess historical and geographic curiosity tasting the authentic versions of things you know the most traditional version i mean of course there are many different traditional versions but let's say a version that's definitely not untraditional like my adding of the red wine uh, but right. i agree with you that that there's an there's a an a kind of historic interest in this but it's not there's nothing there's no ethics to it to me there's nothing ethically better about making a doll that is closer to some traditional yeah. version if you like it better or if it's more nostalgic to you or if you're interested to know how it used to taste um then um then then fine but the kind of there is this sort of moralizing that's added to it that i find very weird and um slightly even sort of jingoistic or racist it's kind of like yep. our thing is the best thing and cannot be improved upon um it makes me a bit uncomfortable and i like the fact that you don't at one point you say in the book um uh only the most fraudulent people insist upon authenticity <laughs> which i loved <laughs> yeah no it's it's interesting because uh you know even if one were to say you know i i like traditional recipes or traditional foods uh i usually want to ask them exactly you know how far do you have to go mm. right and one how do you determine what is authentic right and what are those dimensions is it is it geography uh or is it is it caste uh is it religion is it uh you know and what you know at what scale of geography right so my my grandmother's sambar is different from her sisters they use different ingredients so which one is more authentic so you know there is that right um and mm -hmm. the second thing is how far back do you go right you know uh every every almost every ingredient that goes into this uh uh western india popular street dish called pav bhaji every single ingredient in a pav bhaji almost every single ingredient is not of indian origin mm. and yet people will talk about an authentic pav bhaji the word pav is literally the portuguese word for bread mm. there was no <laughs> bread the portuguese introduced bread uh to to the western part of india right uh the bhaji itself is made from potatoes introduced by the portuguese there were no potatoes in india before uh, they were discovered in you know in in peru and bolivia uh, and then they made their way to europe and then they made their way uh, to india there were no chilies in india right we used to use green pepper and long pepper as the heat and ginger as the heat agents uh, so there were no chilies in india there were no tomatoes in india there were no carrots uh, there were no french beans every one of these 
is the and 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 obviously you know bell peppers uh, green peppers of of uh, capsicum and so on every one of these every ingredient in pav bhaji other than the spices right is of european origin or were introduced was introduced by the europeans right so what is authentic right is is a, does a sambar that uses european ingredients authentic right is so my grandmother uh, when she grew up uh, she grew up in a place where uh, in, what used to be called english vegetables meaning carrot cabbage and so on were all introduced by the british um so it was the native gourds and the native vegetables that they used to use in their sort of gravy dishes and once she came to chennai um uh, and you know she got access to carrots and these things because they had bigger markets uh, where you could uh, import these vegetables from the colder parts of india where they could be, they could be uh, sort of grown back in the day um, and she started using them right um uh, and so on so this is you know cooking in my opinion is continuously evolves uh and so for you to con- consider something traditional is to artificially construct a box around perhaps just your own memories your own nostalgia your own house and then say and declare it to be you know the only way other people should enjoy it you know that's what i find you know sort of quite silly patently silly about you know uh, people sort of fighting for authenticity mm mm yeah i i make pav bhaji all the time <laughs> by the way it's become a kind of standard <laughs> standard stand what's the word it's a running joke in our house um it's like oh it's ayuna's turn to cook it's going to be pav bhaji again um <laughs> and um i nevertheless my sort of sense of what the platonic ideal of pav bhaji is is just the pav bhaji at um swati snacks which is this chain in in bombay um that i yeah. used to go to and i'm sure that's not i'm sure many people would not consider that authentic but to me it's like i'm i want to recreate the platonic i can't but i want to recreate the platonic ideal of the taste from swati snacks um but of course when my pune friend went to swati snacks she was like this is rubbish pav bhaji the good pav bhaji is in <laughs> pune in this particular place in pune <laughs> um yeah. that i have been to been going to since childhood <laughs> um yeah so in fact the the, the nostalgia the you know, as you mentioned right and you know your friend saying that this is rubbish right that's exactly the problem with the idea of authenticity because at the end of the day uh, how we perceive flavors uh, is is fundamentally down to what flavor memories and nostalgia we built um, as as children uh, and as young people uh, and so the whole idea of comfort food the whole idea of this is authentic is nothing more than just the strength of your own memories right so to your friend uh, her idea of a good pav bhaji came from that store and that's her memory that's it and the stronger that memory is the harder it is for you to appreciate another variant of pav bhaji mm, mm. uh and so i think you know so that's the that you know we, we are now discovering thanks to neurogastronomy which is a sort of new interdisciplinary science of how we perceive flavors and so on uh that actually to be nothing more uh, nothing sort of breaks down this idea of authenticity more than neurogastronomy the fact that ultimately flavor perception is deeply individual no two people taste the uh, experience food the same way uh, we ex- uh, the way we experience food is not simply as a result of objective greatness on the part of the chef making it it is in equal part the baggage and the memories and the nostalgia and the flavor images that you carry in your brain uh result of your upbringing the result of what foods you are allowed to eat not allowed to eat taboos uh, and a whole bunch of those things um and so you know therefore i think you know this is this entire uh, you know conversation around authenticity is is getting even less and less valid as we discover more about how individual and personal taste experiences actually are mm mm What advice would you give to a budding cook who feels who is um who is um intimidated by Indian cookery because they feel it's too complicated or labor intensive? I think uh to anyone wanting to start to cook Indian food first and foremost I think um realize that there are probably 100 ways to make the same dish. Uh and also realize that if you take an Indian recipe uh skip half the ingredients 
and just replace it with whatever you have. And I think part of the reason I wrote this book is to arm people with this idea of what role each ingredient plays, right? So there is a, there are acids, uh, there are spices, uh, both fresh and dry spices. There are stocks, uh, there are fats, right? And there are your ingredients themselves. And these five things, if you kind of know what role each one of them play, uh, you could make Indian food with whatever spices you have. And, and I say this, even if you have oregano and parsley, uh, you know, you don't have coriander, just replace coriander with parsley and you'll be fine. Um, it, it may not taste like coriander, but it will still taste good. Uh, and I think, you know, fundamentally what I want to tell people is that Indian cooking is really about learning a small set of uh, flavor extraction techniques that maximize the amount of spice flavors, you know, sort of getting into your food. That's really what it is. That's really, that's all there is to it, right? Uh, and therefore, uh, the idea is understand the Bayard reaction, understand how to extract spices into fats, uh, how to how to exact how, how to how to make flavorful broths, uh, and in some sense, uh, and how to do finishing spices, right? Uh, and then many of these other techniques, you know, using wine, using sous vide, all of that is completely up to you. So don't be bothered by someone telling you that uh, Indian food has to be cooked laboriously, manually in exactly this way. And it will, you know, take you a visit to the grocery store to buy, you know, 100 ingredients that you will never use again. Um, and that will take two hours to put a dish together. That's entirely wrong. Right. I think, you know, people in India put together Indian food uh, in under 20 minutes. Uh and I think that's the people you should be emulating, not the not the people who write cookbooks or chefs. You have a fantastic, I mean, you don't have many um, recipes in that book, more templates, as you say, but you yes. do have one recipe and it's a kind of three minute chana masala with coconut milk. Yes. Um, and yes. it's just basically put all these ingredients together and pop it in the microwave. Um, exactly. And I haven't tried that yet, but I'm looking forward to trying it. And so that's just a lovely, if somebody wants a place to start, that's a lovely place to start. Um, Absolutely. And I did want to mention, because one thing people always complain about with cookery books or that they take as, I guess, an indication of whether a cookery book is to be taken seriously or not, or anything that is, this isn't, your book is not a cookery book, but any book that is describing food processing or cooking is um, that bad cookery books will tell you to brown the onions and it takes, and they will tell you it will take five minutes or five to 10 minutes. Yes. And that is just wrong. So when I was reading your book, I was waiting to see, I was waiting for the browning, onion browning test. Um, and yes. when you came to the part about, when you were talking about browning onions, you said it will take 45 to 50 minutes. And then yes. I, then, well, I already knew, but then at the latest, you will know this guy doesn't fuck around. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. So actually, for most part, people don't quite brown their onions at all. But nobody has 45 to 50 minutes uh, to spare. Uh, and in fact, you know, I, also part of the reason why, you know, people making biryani uh, tend to take the shortcut of simply just frying the onions, mm. right? Uh, because you can deep fry an onion, uh, small pieces of onions into something golden brown and crisp. Uh, although in that case, you're actually aiming for the, the crisper texture. As, as well as the the brown uh, sort of flavor as well. Uh, that you can maybe do in five to seven minutes. But, uh, you know, sauteing onions, if you want to get them brown, you got to saute them for a long while. I mean, you could use a little bit of baking soda to accelerate that process, but it will still take a fair amount of time. Yes. I mean, I, I personally just um, work in the kitchen whilst things are cooking. So I don't mind if things take a long time, if there's just less right. hands-on time. I know that in India also uh, fuel costs are an issue. So um, people want to speed certain processes up because it costs a lot to, to um, yep. um, the fuel. Whereas for us, it's almost, it's, it's so little, the cost of that, yes. that, that in general, we don't bother with pressure cookers and other things that speed, speed stuff up. Because it can oh, just yes, simmer yes. on the stove for three hours whilst you're doing other things. Um, yep. Yeah. Do you um, do you notice differences between attitudes towards f food in India and in the West? And have you noticed differences in the reception to your book in India and in the West? 
It's so um, there's the book actually sort of uh, because of the pandemic supply chain and other uh, issues. Uh, uh, the book finally became available uh, in the West. Uh, Oh, actually, only just about last week. Um, in terms of, and then even then, they it it kind of sold out pretty quickly. So, uh, which is both you know good and bad news. I mean, the bad news is that it'll take a lot more time for them to print the stock and then now export it, given the current uh, the pandemic situation and so on. Uh, but the book is done uh, very well amongst uh, many audiences, uh, and I think uh, one, it's clearly found a core, a large audience of young uh, Indian people. No, regardless of where they are in the world, uh, who who kind of started taking to cooking more seriously during the pandemic, um, and so they found this to be a a good way to uh, sort of get the basics right, especially when you when you're not being mentored by a grandmother or mother or someone who you can learn from. Uh, the idea is that look, you know, this is a dist- distillation of a lot of their wisdom in ways that you're not going to find in a in a traditional cookbook or on the internet. So that's number one. That's clearly one core audience. Uh, it has also found uh, a sizable audience amongst uh, a lot of people in the West uh, who are clearly intimidated by Indian cooking, uh, and they find a lot of the writing and, and the techniques just to be too overwhelming, uh, and they like this approach. Uh, and to and to be fair, food science has kind of become popular uh, in in the West thanks to you know Kenji Lopez Alt and uh, Harold McGee, you know, and the likes, you know, Heston Blumenthal, uh, and so on. So. I think this approach, this sort of scientific approach, uh, sort of also resonates with a lot of people who like, who are Indophiles and like Indian cooking, uh, and and kind of want to get into it. So that's clearly another um, audience. But the third and really surprising audience uh, for me, uh, particularly, uh, I was I was told that a good chunk of my sales actually came from chefs, Indian chefs, gifting this book to all of their uh, you know their family and friends, uh, and so on, saying that look, you know. Uh, this this is this kind of explains the science of Indian cooking. You know, people keep asking me. Chefs are great chefs. They're not necessarily great communicators, uh, and somehow for some reason this seems to have sort of resonated with 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 Indian chefs, uh, and they've been gifting my book to uh, a lot of people as well. So I've been fortunate uh, given the circumstances and the and the wholesale sort of uh, uh, the trouble that the publishing industry is in that the book has actually done well across all of these audiences. So I think hopefully over the next few months as it becomes more available. Uh, in the West, you know, we'll have a better idea. Uh, I I, met, I got mine about four or five months ago. Um, I think it's when I first read it. That was in the UK. Um, so um, I don't know how. I mean, there was a there was a time at which it was available. Yes, uh, mind you, in I, the, it was it was briefly available, uh, and then it see it ran out because they they uh, they had actually stocked very few copies uh, uh. at the start, and it sold out very quickly. Uh, and then there were UK was under tremendous uh, you know lockdown and pandemic pressure, and then you know it took till April to restock again, and then it sold out again. So, uh, so hopefully now they'll order more copies. But you know that's the nature of the publishing industry. Well, well, um, the moral of that is that people need to be smart and do what I did, which is pre-order so that it's, as soon as it was available, <laughs> it will be sent to you. Yes. Um, yes. So I would highly or recommend buy it on the Kindle if you are. Yeah, yes. or the Kindle if you if you are into that. Yes. Yes, it's also fine on Kindle, um, yep. because there aren't that many illustrations, um, and they're they're more like um, the illustrations are more like science scientific diagrams rather than you know beautiful. What? Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Ashok. Rather than beautiful <laughs> works of art. Um, yes. I I think though that it's. Um, well, if you are not a, a cook, but you enjoy popular science, then you will enjoy reading this book. You will enjoy reading the science behind it um, because it is a science book. It's not a cookbook. So if you are, um, you know, if you're, if you don't cook at all or you're not interested in cooking, but you, you like science, you're going to love this book and you're going to read it once. And then maybe you should buy it on Kindle. But if you are a cook, you're going to read it once with great enjoyment, and then it's going to become a reference book. So I am. It, mine is already the spine is already looking quite beaten up because I'm <laughs> constantly going to the index to see what you say about times for brining or um, when to add which spices or etc. Um, and again, it's always guidelines, so it doesn't matter what specific thing I'm cooking. Um, I can. 
try to work out, you know, what the guidelines are. So I'm always, it's always like, what would Jesus do? It's what would Ashok do? Um, <laughs> and uh, I flick back to the relevant part of the book. So if you do cook, I would recommend you pre-order the, the, um, the actual physical book. And if you just like, like reading science, then, then it's fine to read it on the Kindle. But the Kindle is very, um, it's very inconvenient looking things up on a Kindle. Um, yeah. Afterwards. And I say that as somebody who mostly reads on Kindle. Um, so yeah, it's a fantastic book. Um, is there anything that, that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, I think uh, I uh, I think you covered a uh, good amount of the ground, and I think uh, uh, any more, and I think we would have given enough knowledge uh, for people. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to discourage them from buying the actual book, but I think uh, it was a lovely interview, and I think uh, I like the fact that we sort of you know uh, discuss both just the science and the history and the context, and uh, uh, and uh, I'm sort of very uh, honored to hear that you know your uh, you use the book as a reference. Uh, and you're right. I think you know. Uh, I find the Kindle to be better for a fiction reading, where I can just you know just read you know in sequence. I'm not actually jumping back and forth. Uh, and I find physical books better for nonfiction. So that's that's my sort of way of uh, thinking about this. Uh, and I think only the only thing I would say is is that uh, you know this is this is one of those areas where uh, I'll give you an example. Right. So in the book, one of the things I talk about is hydration of floors and, you know, the fact that, you know, the more water you add to floor, the softer your, you know, chapati or whatever it is, you know, is going to be. Um, and then I say that typically, you know, and uh, I, I tend to use 100% hydration and so on. A lot of people wrote to me saying that I tried 100% hydration um, and it just became too sticky for me. And so in that sense, you know, uh, what I also realize uh, is that sometimes when you're writing about cooking, uh, it is important to as much as be authoritative about something that this is exactly how you do it, while at the same time recognizing that the kitchen is not a chemistry lab. Uh, everything is not precise. Uh, the humidity, uh, the quality of the floor, uh, the whether it's organic, non-organic, the amount of fiber, the amount of protein in the floor, uh, and the time of the day, all of these uh, sort of you know affect uh, how how soft your dough is going to be and how much water how much hydration you might need to add and so on so one of the things i would ask people to uh, urge is that you know you read the book don't skip the methodology chapter at the end uh, if you ask me and i was just thinking about whether i should put that up front or at the end but then eventually we decided to put it at the end but i would urge you to make sure that you read that because i think ultimately at the end of the day i tell you about uh, what is it that i do in order to arrive at the insights that i have right uh, and you know how i treat the kitchen as a very simple sort of a laboratory keep a little bit of notes uh, nothing too laborious and so on uh, and arrive at what works for me and i and i clearly call out the fact that uh, sometimes people will figure out that you know for the brand of floor that i buy 80% hydration is what works for me you know or maybe some people it could be 95 right uh, so i think you know it's it's important to also realize that uh, don't think of this and you know, i know she said it's a reference book and so on uh, but i think i what what should be a reference is the is the method of how you arrive at it mm -hmm. rather than the actual numbers themselves mm -hmm. right so with that you know i just thought i'll add that yes and it's also a matter of taste um how exactly Absolutely. you like things um yes i'm going to end by reading from the very beginning of the book um in the introduction to give people a further kind of taste of what's in here. This book is very dense with information. So um, please don't feel that in this interview, we have by any means exhausted what the book is about. Um, it's uh, every page has fun and interesting stuff um, and useful stuff. Um, but I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning. Cooking, people will tell you, is an art. Indian cooking in particular is supposed to be an art wrapped in oriental mystique, soaked in exotic history and deep fried in tradition and culture. Western food is supposed to be scientific and bland, while Indian cooking, we are told, is all about tradition and flavour. Some people innately have a knack for it and many don't. The Tamil expression, I can't, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, Kai, Kai Madam. 
thank you, which literally means hand flavor, is used as a compliment for those who have somehow had this arcane knowledge handed down to them. The metaphor also hints at where exactly that knowledge is stored, hint, not the brain, and thus is hard to transfer to another person. The COVID-19 pandemic transformed life as we knew it. The fact that cooking is an essential life skill stares us more intensely in the eye than at any time so far. But learning to cook Indian food, it turns out, is a Byzantine maze with conflicting instructions and pseudoscience. The convenience of being able to swiggy some amazing butter chicken from a daba five kilometers away, and the fact that more and more young people are living by themselves in cities, which are not their hometowns, means that even if they want to cook, they neither have the time nor the daily access to someone who can mentor them in the way your grandmother learned to cook from an older member of her family. And because we have never bothered to build a standard, documented model of underlying cooking methods and the science behind these techniques, a meta-model if you will, Indian cooking continues to be wrongly considered all art and no craft. This is a pity, given that this part of the world has contributed traditional culinary methods the scientific West has embraced as New Age food science in recent years. The curcumin in turmeric is now a superfood, as is the drumstick, which is sold as moringa powder in Brooklyn for an arm and a leg. Fermentation and sprouting of legumes go back thousands of years in India, while pickling as a technique to extend the shelf life of food in a hot and unforgiving climate has been around forever. There is no dearth of, hey look, our ancient tradition is now science, chest thumping on social media. But what is missing is any serious attempt at actually documenting these culinary practices as part of a practical engineering playbook, outside of the cultural, historical and spiritual contexts. By treating our culinary tradition as something sacred, artistic and borderline spiritual, we are doing it a grave disservice. Let me take music as a metaphor here. Indian classical music one of the most sophisticated artistic traditions in the world, has, I would argue, suffered from the lack of documentation and archiving. In fact, the insistence on purely oral traditions of transmission of knowledge have ended up making the art a very elitist affair, not accessible to the wider population. Western music, in contrast, has a simple visual system of notation that is able to accurately capture every nuance. Because of this, we are able to perform a Bach concerto in exactly the same way as he intended in the 18th century. As an amateur musician myself, my teachers would often tell me that Indian classical music cannot be described and documented because its nuances are beyond the ability of language to describe with fidelity. (laughs) Um, With due respect, I think that's bullshit. What we are doing with food is rather similar. By not using the tools and language of modern science and engineering to continuously analyze and document different Indian culinary traditions, and instead just writing down recipes, we are doing the food equivalent of lip syncing to a pre-recorded track. So I think that's a lovely introduction to what you're doing in the book. And um, all all that remains to say is that I will um, put the details of how to order the book, your YouTube channel, where else to find you uh, in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for joining me, Ashok. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy and have a wonderful week.